I know these are interesting times for you. I know they can be stressful times. I know they can be challenging times. These are faith-testing times to where you begin to wonder a little bit about what God might be doing or maybe what God may be saying as a church. But I have always found that what we go through as a church is only a reflection of what we're going through individually also. So I know in a crowd this size, there are those of you sitting there today, and you're wrestling with God's will for your life. You're wrestling with what the Lord is saying to you. How do I hear the voice of God? How do I know what steps to take? How do I discern what the Spirit is actually saying? And there's a couple of things that I want to do before I get in. We're going to go into the book of Nehemiah, if you want to open there, to Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're going to pull some principles out of the book of Nehemiah this morning. But real quickly, I just want to do a couple of things. One is I want to encourage you and encourage you from the standpoint to make you realize that what you all have here in this church, do not take this for granted. I have the opportunity to be in different churches almost every single Sunday in all different denominations, all different sizes, all different makes, all different styles, all different demographics, all different ways in which church is conducted. And I just want to encourage you that maybe if you have gone to various churches here in the Tyler area, you are already aware of this. But if Soma is your first church experience, maybe you're not aware of this, is that the authenticity that you have here is not commonplace that you find everywhere else. And I want to encourage you to protect that. I want to encourage you to know that God has given you a stewardship of His Spirit in this place. And wherever it is that He leads you and wherever it is you gather to meet, that is secondary unto the fact that God has given you the opportunity to steward His presence in a very, very special way. And let me encourage you not to ever lose sight of that. Let me encourage you never to uh, take it for granted that you begin to deal with what you have here casually and not realize that this is something very, very special in the sight of God. The other thing I want to do is challenge you a little bit to, real t- to encourage you that there is no more exciting thing to do to be on mission with God. There is no more exciting place to be than where God desires for you to be able to be. It is an amazing thing when I think about the fact that God has given us an invitation, and none of us deserve this invitation. None of us have earned it. None of us have reached a special place in our relationship with God where we're more important than anybody else. You know, there's no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. God loves all of us the same, all of us equally. So we have to understand that this invitation is not based upon us being special. It is just based upon the fact that God has invited us to be on mission with Him. And what an incredible thought that is, to realize that God gives us an opportunity to identify, number one, what His mission is. And then to sign up to be on mission with him to fulfill that kingdom agenda. And it's always about a kingdom agenda. It is always about what God is doing in the kingdom. Soma is a part of God's kingdom perspective. It is not just all about what happens within the four walls of this building. Even though what happens in the four walls of this building are very, very important. And they're very, very significant, not only to the work of God, but also in your individual life as you are growing in your walk with God. But God has a bigger perspective. And the reason why he is moving you, I believe, is bigger than the fact that the Science Center needs this space. I believe that God knows that what he has in store for you, this place will not be able to contain it. I believe that God has such things for your vision as you connect with him that he has to prepare you to be in a larger place so you will be able to contain all the things that God desires to do. 
It brings challenges, though. It is not without effort. It is not without sacrifice. It is not without commitment. It is not without a heart that is abandoned to God and an ear tuned in to the Spirit of God. That's why I always like to go to the book of Nehemiah. Because if you're looking for a transitional season, now I've been in ministry for 38, 39 years, and it seems like my entire ministry has been a transition. I mean, I, I, you know, sometimes I just feel like getting the t-shirt. I survived the transition. And it's like, Lord, please, can I ever get to a place before I die that I'm not transitioning? But I think sometimes when we're in that rock between the rock and the hard place, it's always a time of transition because God is always moving. God is always active. We do not serve a stagnant God. We do not serve a God that takes rest breaks and says, okay, you can plateau here for a little while. God is always moving. Therefore, to a degree, I guess we are always transitioning. And that can be stressful. That can be challenging. That can even be confusing. So I go back and find a little bit of stable footing in the book of Nehemiah. Because if there was ever a transitional time, that Nehemiah identifies in our life with, it is during his ministry of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Now, let me give you a little bit of a background before we read this first passage in Nehemiah chapter 1. The nation of Israel has been in exile. There is a remnant of people that have, be, that have stayed and have residing in the city of Jerusalem. But because of all of the war that has taken place during the years of exile, the gates are burned with fire. The gates are, bra- are desolated. The walls are, have breaches in them, and they have been broken down to where there is no longer any protection to give for the people that are living within the city. And Nehemiah begins to hear about the condition that's going on within the city of Jerusalem and the condition of the walls. And we find in verse number 4, our very first principle. Well, actually, let's start reading verse number 3. Nehemiah 3 and 4. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And when I heard these words... I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The first thing I want to encourage you with this morning is the fact that God's mission that he wants us to be involved with is always spiritual. It is not going to be able to be discerned by practical understanding. It is not going to be able to be understood by practical eyesight. That's the reason why in the scripture over and over again, Jesus said, for those of you who have spiritual ears, let him hear. For those who have spiritual eyes, let him see. And that is because the kingdom of the God, the kingdom mission that God has us involved in is spiritual. Your leaders and your overseers are spending time in fasting and in prayer to be able to discern in the realm of the spirit what God is saying. It is not just a business transaction. It is not just a stewardship campaign. It is not just about picking up a physical location of a church and moving to another physical location. It is about being in sync with the activity of God. It is about being in step with God's leadership. And the only way as far as spiritual ministry is conducted is in the realm of the Spirit. I don't know about you, but if you've ever wrestled with the will of God for your own life, you know that can be a really confusing time 
especially when you read passages like in Isaiah 55, where God actually says these words, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And whenever I read that, I think, well, great. Then what chance do I have to ever figure out what the plan of God is for me? I mean, how am I ever going to know what my decision-making needs to be? How am I ever going to know what God is asking me to do? If your ways are higher than my ways and your thoughts are higher than my thoughts, then I'm already defeated before I start. But then God shares with us some insight in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And in verse number 9, God makes this promise. He said, I want you to understand that I has not seen, ear has not heard, and your heart has not conceived all of the things that I have laid in store for you, for those that love God. So now I find out that God actually does have a plan. You see, you've got to recognize as a church and as an individual, you are not outside of God's intimate care. God has a plan. We know that by Jeremiah 29, 11, when God says, I know the plans that I have for you. So we are not an accident just looking for someplace to happen, regardless of what you're going through in your life or what Soma is going through as a congregation, that God already knows God already has a plan. He is waiting for us to be able to discern what that plan is. So if his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, but yet God has things laid up in store for us, which is a plan for us, then how are we ever going to know it? You go on to that passage in verse number 10, 11, 12, and 13 out of 1 Corinthians 2, and it says this, that it's the spirit that searches the depths of God. And it's the spirit that knows the heart of man. And he goes on to talk about the fact that there's a spirit is the one that goes before the father and he takes from the throne of the father and he comes and he reveals that into the heart of man. That's why God communicates in, in this first Corinthians two, he says he communicates with spiritual words, with spiritual thoughts. That's why there has to be a discernment of the spirit. That's why we have to be in a position to hear the voice of God, because the only way you're going to know God's ways, the only way you're going to know God's thoughts is by submitting yourself in humility before God and allow in fasting and prayer the Spirit of God to take from the Father and reveal that to you. And that's what your leadership is doing. Your leadership is seeking to hear the voice of God. And yes, it's going to involve a physical move. It's going to involve a relocation, but it's also going to involve your commitment level. It's also going to involve this congregation moving to another leather level of involvement. And I always love that opportunity because it's not just for a select few. It is absolutely open to everyone to be involved in the process that God is actually going to be able to lead. Look over in another, in a, in another verse, chapter 2, Nehemiah, verse number 17 and 18. I love this because there is always this opportunity. Now, Nehemiah got the vision to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. He got the vision how? Fasting and prayer. Say fasting and prayer with me. That's how it's going to happen. It is going to happen by the voice of the Spirit. Look at verse 17. Then I said to them, Nehemiah speaking, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. He wasn't just talking to a spiritual leadership team. He wasn't just talking to a group of overseers. He was talking to the people that actually made that place their home. 
And look at verse number 18. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and about the king's words which he had spoken to me. And they said, the people spoke to Nehemiah, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to a good work. That's what you're being given the opportunity to do right now. The Exodus cards that Tony just talked about, that is your opportunity to put your hand to a good work. Throughout my years of ministry, I have had the opportunity to build several things, to to advance the kingdom by having to do tangible type things. And every single time we have done this, I have found that it is by the commitment level of the people. It's not my ingenuity. It's not my creativity. It's not my persuasive tone of being able to ask somebody to get on board. It is because the people heard the vision. The people heard the mission. And I think a couple of weeks ago, Tony shared with you all in a larger sense, the vision of this church is not just about finding another building. The vision of this church is touching the lives of people. The vision of this church is expanding the kingdom of God. The vision of this church is taking healing to those that hurt. The vision of this church is delivering those that are bound. The vision of this church is introducing people into a relationship with God that do not have that relationship with God. To do that, this move is is only a means to an end. It is a conduit. It is not the vision. It is an aspect of accomplishing the vision. So I've been able to, to share that with people, and people in churches have bought that. I remember in the early days of our ministry in Lindale, too, I'd only been there for a few weeks, and, uh, and obviously we were a little antiquated. You'll get a kick out of this. First day I walk in as the new pastor of this church, you kind of walk down in this dungeon-type building where the offices were. I mean, nobody ever wanted to come to the office. I didn't even want to go to the office. It was spooky down there. I mean, and you walk in, and it's old Sunday school dilapidated room that used to be used for that, and now it was the pastor's office. It was an upgrade. And I walk in, and there are yellow rotary dial telephones. Y'all don't even know what rotary dial telephones are, but there used to be a day and time in some of your parents' life to where there was this large telephone, and it had a dial on it, and every number had a hole, and you would sit there and dial every number all the way around. They had rented those telephones from the phone company for 20 years. They'd probably paid $30,000 for these telephones. So the first thing that we did was, guys, we've got we've to change the dynamic of the way this looks. So we present that to the church. And the church faith level at that point said, yeah, I think we can do that. So we launched out on a Saturday, and all the people in the church put their mind and put their hand to a work, and we framed in a brand-new 1,500-square-foot office building in one Saturday. And within about five weeks later, we moved into it, and the people felt such a faith boost before they real- so they realized that God really was able to do what he said he was going to do. A year or so down the road, we were completely out of space with our children's ministry, such as what you are here. So we went behind our fellowship hall, and we built another preschool building this time. And the people said, you know, God was faithful when we built the office. We just believe that we can do this. And they all got together, and we did the work, and we built the building. A couple of years later, we were going to build a new worship center building. 
And we had somebody draw plans, and we got bids, and they came in and told me it was going to cost $1.5 million. And after I got my breath, and, I, and, and God just kind of spoke to me and said, you do not need to put $1.5 million into this building. So we began to look for different alternatives. And what we decided was, you know what? God was faithful in building the office building. God was faithful in building the preschool building. We just believe that we can take this project on too. So what we did is we hired a company to come and pour the concrete slab. And, and then we built the shell of a metal building. And then all of the congregation said, we'll just put our hands to a good work. And we got in and we finished it. And we finished it in phases and got it done. You know, there is nothing more fulfilling and exciting for a church that participates together, that understands that this vision is inclusive. There is no one on the outside looking in. But what I have also discovered is that every single member within the congregation has got to receive that invitation to be involved in that work. In Ephesians chapter 4, what does God call us? He calls us a body. And he says, if the body is going to function in a healthy way, what's got to happen? Every individual part has got to fulfill its part. Because when every individual part fulfills its part, then the body functions in a healthy way and the body is built up in love. So I encourage you this morning, do not allow this consumeristic generation that we have in our culture to look around and say, well, somebody else will just do it. Somebody else will just pick up the slack. No, you'll miss the incredible blessing if you do not say, I am going to be a part of this rising up to build. I'm going to be a part of this process. One of the things that you need to understand also, because when it comes to finances, the devil can really speak into your ear and make you feel a little insignificant and a little inferior. You know, to where, you know, you just don't have as much to give as somebody else, so your gift is not even really relevant. I'll never forget when we were raising money for a project out in Lindale, that we had so conveyed this idea that everyone's gift is significant to God. And here's a statement that you need to remember, because this is the way the economy of God works in the kingdom. It is not about equal giving. It is about equal sacrifice, because everybody in the body is called to sacrifice. Everybody in the body is called to be generous. Everybody in the body is called to be a part of a sacrificial offering of themselves first and then of their possessions unto the Lord. And we so conveyed that and we so talked about that. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget the day that we were taking an offering and this little kid, I don't know how old it was, she was, but she wasn't very old. The most valuable thing that she had was a little piece of costume jewelry that was a ring. That was the most valuable thing in which she had. And I'll never forget it, the most, probably one of the most humbling things I have ever experienced. When she came down the aisle and got my attention, and she took that little ring off her finger and gave that to me, and she says, I want to be able to give this to be a part of what you all are trying to do and what the Lord's doing. And, you know, you're easy to, well, that's not worth anything, <laughs> you know. I mean, tangibly, I mean, it's Cracker Jack's material. I mean, I, you know, that's not going to buy anything. That's worse than Tony's minivan. I mean, it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be worth anything. But you know what? I believe in God's eyes, that was extremely valuable. And we affirmed her, and we built her up, and we celebrated her, and we just cherished that gift. Why? Because it was something that was a sacrifice for her. 
And that's something we have to understand. There are no inferior gifts when it comes to investing in the kingdom of God. That everybody is valuable. That everybody is significant. That God has something for everyone to be involved in. So that's important. The mission is spiritual. The second thing I want to mention quickly is the fact that the mission will face spiritual opposition. How many of you realize that the devil is not going to give up any territory without a fight? Raise your hand. You've experienced that in your own life. I mean, he is never going to allow you to take a step toward progress without having a counterattack to dissuade you from making that step. And that's something that we've got to be aware of. We've got to be alert to that fact. Look over in chapter 4. Chapter 4, Nehemiah's project begins to get attacked a little bit. In verse number 7 and 8, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, and that the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry, and all of them caused to gather and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance. Boy, it's sad to say, sometimes in the body of Christ, there are people just set out to cause a disturbance. There are people that are just not going to be a part of the process. There are people that are just not going to submit themselves to what God is trying to say. Sanballat and Tobiah and the other Arabs that were the ones that began to discourage the children of Israel from building the wall because they were angry at the progress that was going on. You always have to keep in your mind that every time you are going to take a step in obedience, you are taking, stepping in new territory that the enemy does not want to give up. The enemy never wants to see you move forward. The enemy never wants to see your commitment level get deeper. He never wants to be able to see the kingdom expanded. And it's at this very moment that many Christians that I have noticed through the years in ministry get discouraged and kind of stop in the journey because they are fearful in their spirit. They become fearful about what might not happen rather than believing what can happen. They begin to ask questions like, well, what's going to happen to us if God doesn't come through? It changes the perspective. We begin to be skewed, not about all of the optimism about what God's going to do, but fearful what's going to happen if God doesn't do. What's plan B going to be, Tony? You know what I learned a long time ago? when God doesn't really have a plan B. God gives a plan A. What did he tell the disciples? I'm going to leave. I'm going to give you the commission to go into all the world, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded unto you. And I can just imagine Peter. Well, Peter, that's a pretty big, or Jesus, that's a pretty big plan. You know, we're not really that dependable. <laughs> you know, we've, pr- we've proven that. You know, we, we've not really been really on the A team all along and following you. What's your plan B? And I can imagine the shock on Peter's face when Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, there is no plan B. You're the only plan I got. And that's the way God looks at us as the congregation. You know, I, had a, I have a friend of mine that used to tell people when he was taking up offerings in concerts, he said, we don't have any rich people behind us. He said, if they are, they're so far behind us, they've not called up yet. <laughs> now, what does that mean? It's just us. It's just the body. And Satan always tries to counteract what God is wanting to do in the body. And it's this crossroads moment that happens. And all of us face those crossroads. And when you face a crossroads in your life, it is what you do at that moment that determines not what you believe about the crisis, not what you believe about the mountain that you're facing, 
Not what you believe about the circumstance that you're up against. It declares what you believe about God. It declares whether God's big enough or he's not, whether he's faithful or he's not, whether he'll do what he said or he won't. And what we do at that crossroads moment depends and declares and reveals what it is that we truly do believe about God. This is what I have found in my life where God usually puts me in a little bit of a holding pattern. Have you ever just had to wait? Y'all are waiting right now as a church. Don't you hate it? I mean, don't you? It just stinks, doesn't it? I mean, nobody likes to wait. But when you study the Old Testament and the life of Israel, God told them to wait 43 times. He told them to wait 43 times. So I begin to think, well, if God tells us to wait 43 times in the Old Testament, there's got to be something significant that takes place in the waiting. You see, I believe this. I don't believe any moment with God is wasted. There's no downtime with God. God is not just off busy doing something else and has forgot about you guys. There is something bigger going on. So when you begin to identify what the bigger thing is, we come up with a few things that God does in this series of in this time of waiting. The first thing I found in my own life is God gives, gives clear direction when we're willing to wait. You see, God doesn't operate on the same value system and the same time frame that the world operates on. You know, I used to say all the time that, you know what, I would love to be able to buy God a calendar. Does he not know what date it is? I mean, is he not aware about the time crunch that we are under? But yet God puts us in a waiting period, so be much like when God delivered them across the Red Sea, as Melissa was sharing earlier, that when it does come through, there is absolutely no shadow of a doubt where that breakthrough actually did come through. So we get clear direction from God. The other thing I have found that happens in my life, that God gets us in step with his timing. We learn that he is the pace setter, not ourselves. The thing that God may be doing in our waiting period is protecting us. How many of you have ever been, gotten ahead of God? Ever got ahead of God? Made a decision on your own? Said, oh, God, I got this. <laughs> I got this. You know, don't worry. I'm not even going to bother you with this. I got this. This is simple. I got this under control. A few days later, you think, help me, God. I don't have this under control. You know, it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. And boy, God just continues to teach me in my life. He's the pace setter. I am the follower. And that's what a disciple is. A disciple is one that follows after Jesus. I am not the one that calls the shots. I am not the one that tells the potter how to shape the clay. I am the clay being molded by the one that sees the finished product before he even starts the project. So we've got to get in pace with his timing. And then the third one may be the most important of all is that God uses the time of waiting to prepare us for the answer. Because God is not just satisfied with the outward stuff. God wants to work on our heart. Boy, I tell you, and sometimes God does spiritual surgery without any anesthesia. Have you ever been in one of those times? <laughs> Whew. It's like, Lord, you could have dealt with this a little easier. But God knows what those rough edges are. God knows how to chisel those things off. God knows how to make us conform to his image. And here's what I've discovered in my life, and maybe you'll find this to be true in you. It's what God, what God does during the time of waiting. 
is really more important than the answer that we're waiting for. That's what God is all about. God is not just about giving us our desires and our wants when on our time frame. It is about getting in sync with him. I got to hurry real quick. But number three, Jeremiah chapter four, verse number 10. Thus in Judah, it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I've got to mention it because you've got to be very careful about negativity. And I'm sure that you all in a church this great doesn't have any negative people in it. I'm sure you've never struggled with having negative thoughts. I'm sure you've never struggled with wondering whether or not you're actually going to be able to do it. But all of a sudden, the tribe of Judah began to say, you know what, this task is too hard for us. This task is too difficult. We've been working all this time, and Nehemiah, there's still a bunch of rubbish laying around. Are we ever going to be able to really get the job done? The people that are doing the work, their strength is failing. I believe you've led us into this project, and we're never going to be able to see it through. Now, that would be one thought if we were talking about the, the peripheral people of the kingdom. We're talking about the tribe of Judah. We're talking about the core people, the people that God spoke to, the people that knew the voice of God, and all of a sudden they begin to say, oh, I just don't think we're going to be able to do it. I don't think it's going to happen. Then it reminds me of Numbers chapter 13 when Israel was going to go into the promised land, and they sent 12 guys in. The only two we know is Joshua and Caleb. The 10 other guys, we have no idea who those guys were. But Joshua and Caleb comes back. Why do, we remember, why do we remember them? Because they said, man, this land is exactly like God said it was. Let's go get it. The other 10 guys says, whoa, 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 whoa. We've got to have a committee meeting about this. <laughs> Wait a minute. There needs to be a vote of the congregation on this because when we went to that land, yeah, it was flowing with milk and honey. But I'm going to tell you something. There were fortified cities in that land. There were giants in that land. Matter of fact, they were so big, we looked like grasshoppers in their sight. And all of a sudden, they began to compare the promise of God with their natural understanding. And they forgot that the land was called what? The promised land. (laughs) Who did the promise come from? It came from God. All they had to do was go in and take the land. God had already said, every city you face, I'll give it into you. Every giant you face... I'll give them unto you. Every place your foot walks, everything that your hand goes to, I'm going to give that land unto you. You see, you've got to remind yourself that the God factor changes the equation. You've got to understand that what God leads you to do, he's going to provide the way for it to get done. But it does not take very long in a church for a little bit of negativity. Starts out real innocent. Well, you know, I tell you, that's a lot of money to raise. And number one, I don't even like making a commitment and, you know, and, you know, don't have a problem signing the note at Southside Bank. And, you know, but I don't want to make a commitment to church. And I'm sorry, I'm meddling now. But I, and, you know, I, I would just rather let things flow and let them be, you know, like they are. And, I, you know, and then it begins to say, I don't know what Tony's thinking. I don't know why he would take us into a project this big, making this type of a, of a commitment level. And then the negativity begins to build. And I only say that as a caution, because I'm sure that that's not occurring in this congregation. But let me caution you to be sensitive against that. 
Let me caution you that that is like speaking a curse over the vision of God. That is like questioning the ability of God. It's questioning the discernment of the Spirit. And that's where every church has got to reach a place where they say, you know what? We have enough confidence in our leadership that they're going to teach us the Word of God every single week, and we're going to receive that from them. Therefore, we're going to trust them that they have spent time with God. It has been confirmed by outside people, and we believe this is the voice of God, and we are going to submit to leadership, and we're going to be a part of this journey. Well, that sounds simple in the four walls of this building. Let me tell you how uncommon that is. Let me tell you how uncommon that is in the average church. Why? You got to protect this. You cannot allow negativity begin to be talked about. A little bit will spread through a body like a disease. When Jesus said a little leaven leavens the whole lump, he was actually serious that it only takes a little bit. So guard yourself against that. Realize that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 actually says that we walk by faith and not by sight, that sometimes we have to be stretched. Sometimes we have to be able to get to the edge of the Red Sea. There was another time in the Jordan River they were going to cross. It was at flood stage, and God told them the river's going to part whenever you step into the river. It's not going to happen before you step in. you got to be willing to step over the edge into the unknown, and then I'm going to make the way for the things to open up. Sometimes God wants to see that we are actually willing to live by faith and not just walk by sight. I'm about done. Five more minutes, and we'll be, out of, we'll be done. Number four, I love this part because whenever we are involved in the mission and we see it all the way through, there is a witness that is given that brings glory to God. And I want you to see this in verse numbers 15 and 16, Nehemiah chapter 6. In the last, the first line of verse number 15, so the wall was completed. I believe they finished the project in like 52 days. So remember, it doesn't take months. It doesn't take years. God can operate on a short time frame. Aren't you glad for that? Say amen. That alleviates Tony's blood pressure just a little bit. I can see it. I can see the color coming back into his face. Because it can be a stressful thing. But it's great to know that this great, vast project was completed by the people in 52 days. But here's the cool part. Verse 16. When our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, number one, they lost their confidence. It demoralizes the enemy. (laughs) It demoralizes the enemy. Whenever he is dealing with people that are abandoned to the cause, he cannot compete with that. He cannot compete with people that are so focused upon the king that they do not allow anything to distract them from what God is asking them to be able to do. That's why James 4 says, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. We spend way too much time negotiating with him. We spend way too much time rationalizing with him. What are we supposed to do? Resist him. Stay focused on what God has asked us to do. And when it is completed, it demoralizes the enemy. It's amazing how all the skeptics begin to fade away. It's amazing how all of those that were naysayers no longer have anything to say because God has proven them completely wrong. But here's really the greatest part, the last part of verse 16. 
for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. You know what I've continually asked the Lord for in my ministry? And I have been fortunate to be able to see this come to pass on a few occasions. God, I would love to be a part of something that when it is done, that there is absolutely no other explanation for it getting done other than the fact that you alone did it. That somebody can look and just say, you know what, that was beyond human ability. That was naturally for sure above and beyond his ability, <laughs> you know. I mean, I, I, lo- I long for those times because we can be such control freaks in our life. We can be such control freaks with the things of the Spirit instead of realizing that God is the one that's operating through us. And when Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing, he really did mean that. And in John chapter 6, when he says it's the Spirit that gives life and the flesh profits nothing, he really did mean that. That we need to be able to be in a position to where when we see the, the mission accomplished, it gives all glory to God. And it gives God a witness. And here's the witness that I love for it to be able to see. It tells a generation, and some of this generation is even within the walls of churches, that God is still relevant today, just like he was relevant then. Because there is this mindset in our culture that God is old news, that God is no longer relevant, that God is not intimately involved in our lives, and God does not really have a plan, and God does not lead us. And if you give your heart to the Lord and, and be submissive to his spirit, then there's just something wrong with you mentally because you're not playing with a full deck. I mean, your elevator doesn't go all the way to the top floor. I mean, something's not exactly right in your, in your life. And then all of a sudden it proves the fact, well, maybe God still is powerful. Maybe God still does work miracles. Maybe God still does do extraordinary things with ordinary people. Maybe God can take a small congregation and do kingdom-sized stuff. Maybe God still can do that in Tyler, Texas. Maybe it's not all about what the world can do. Maybe it is about what the kingdom of God is really all about afterwards And then all of a sudden, Jesus becomes extremely attractive because you've got friends, and maybe some of you even in this room, they are searching for answers. They are searching for truth. They've got a lot of questions, and Jesus is the answer to all of those questions. But we need to be able to be in a position to where we are showing him to be so relevant that they are attracted to to him and what he has to offer. Soma this is your opportunity. This is your opportunity. God is inviting you as a body to be involved in his activity, activity that is going to have rewards that will last forever, not temporary, not going to pass away when you pass away, but you are going to have the opportunity to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrode. Man, what an opportunity. And my prayer for you, as I observe from the outside and hear reports, is that you as a congregation will say, let us, plural, rise up and build. And you guys all put your hands to a good work and do a great thing for the kingdom of God, and God gets the glory for every single thing that is done. Man, don't you want to be a part of a church like that? 
Don't you want to be a part of a movement like that? Man, it's a, you know, don't ever come to church just going through, well, it's Sunday again. Gonna, no, this is an opportunity to connect with God, and he has something in store for you that your eye has not seen, your ear has not heard, and your heart has not even conceived of what it can be. Wow. That's pretty exciting. Let's pray.